Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TWS podcast. It's lights out and away we go. I got free sausages sent to me every week for a year. Brilliant. <laughs> no, I never really got uh, I never really got to a place where I could call Michael a friend of mine, really. Don't worry, guys, I'm back. Panic's over. I'm here. And it was Wayne Rooney who walked through the doors. And I remember him saying, just make the most of every moment. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives, talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Tanglewood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. TWS Sports Podcast is a former professional footballer. He played for teams such as Sunderland, Wrexham and Shrewsbury. He is now a head teacher and is a part of the second best podcast in the West Midlands. Welcome to the podcast, Sam Easton. Oh, thank you for that. There's a couple of things on there, isn't there, in that introduction. Top sportsman is probably a little bit generous. And second best podcast. We'll take that at the moment, then we'll take that. <laughs> Before we start, we just wanted to say that if throughout this podcast, if you have any questions for us about anything about our podcast, or you have a question about autism, then please ask. We like to ask answer your questions too. We would also like to start off by saying happy birthday. Have you had a nice day? Yeah, yes, yesterday was yesterday was my birthday. Um 47. Ridiculous that wow. is. Like when I when I was when I was 25, 47 was just ancient. I thought, like, what you got one foot in the grave. <laughs> but you, you do you still feel 25? So um, sometimes. No, it depends what I, it depends what I've done. If I've been for a little run, I don't feel tw- I don't feel 25. But unfortunately, <laughs> as you get older, you know, you, your your body doesn't work quite the same, does it? So you you just you know you just take longer to recover. So I've played a couple of football matches recently well not recently in the past sort of year and a bit and it's been a nightmare recovering from them i have st- struggled in the game struggled after the game struggled for about three days after the game <laughs> we like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start talk about your career are you ready yeah go, go, okay, go on then yeah go on well the first one's me so the first one is who is the most famous person in your phone book oh we had that we had that one um before I, I don't, I've got Sean Dyche in my phone book, but I messaged him and he never got back to me. So I don't know whether that's the same number. Um, <laughs> me, we looked at this, me, Gavin, Dave, on in the stiffs. Um, I've got Michael Bridges. I had Jason McAteer. I think that's probably an old number now. Um, Ryan, Ryan Lowe, maybe. I mean, obviously, he's a good friend of mine. 
not haven't really got that many famous people to be honest. I'm not really I haven't really not really a friend of the stars. If you could trade lives of anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Trade lives. I think it'll be so it'll be someone like Lewis Hamilton. You know, I'm not a massive Grand Prix, but I I just I love the sort of the glitz and the glamour of it all and travelling around and I'd probably just like to experience what it's like to be a Formula One racing driver. So something somebody like a Lewis Hamilton, I think. It's like a top sportsman who's travelling. Yeah, it'd been good this weekend, wouldn't it? F1 yeah. in Las Vegas. I mean, Perfect weekend. Oh, um, <laughs> incredible, isn't it? Absolutely. That would be incredible. <laughs> okay, last question then. If you could have any superpower, what would you have and why? I'd want to fly. I've thought about this before. Wanting to fly, just wanting to get around, wanting to see the world, wanting to explore. I think as you get older, you want to, you know, you want to travel a lot. So I think sometimes now we talk about like Christmas and birthdays. I mean, the wife will always see them. No, not buying material things now, trying to get experiences. So being able to fly everywhere would put, save me a few quid um, <laughs> playing journeys. Okay, so we want to take you back to kind of the start of, well, even before your career. So looking back at your childhood, growing up in, in the northeast, was it Newcastle? What are your Newcastle, memories yeah. of growing up and did you always want to be a footballer? Yeah, it's good. I mean, West End of Newcastle. So in Newcastle, everyone supports Newcastle. It's not like Shrewsbury, where, you know, everybody supports Man United, Liverpool, whoever it might be. In Newcastle, everyone just supports Newcastle. So you get asked, are you going to the match? It's not who do you support. So, yeah, always wanted to play with Newcastle. I wrote, um, Jim will fix it. I remember asking if we could play, if we could have a match or school team against Newcastle United, which... Fortunately, probably looking back, is pleased that he didn't take us up on that offer. Um, um, but yeah, always wanted, always played football. wasn't a particularly brilliant at primary school. It was okay, but you know, not not fantastic. That's what makes me laugh now. My little boy's seven, and I see people um, when he when he plays football, and I see people going, "Oh, he'll be a footballer. He'll be a footballer." And they're seven, and I think, and you've got absolutely no idea at seven if your child's going to be a footballer. So, yeah, um, and I lovely school. I went to an old boys Catholic school, 200 boys in each year. So a lot of test off run. Um, and when we were secondary school, yeah, we had a, de- a very good football team. Then I started to play for Newcastle United, probably about 13. I think I sort of playing, like just not signing, but just playing games for them, training with them. You started your career at Newcastle. Uh, but sadly never played a game for the club. What are your memories of being a teenager at the club? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was brilliant because I, because I stayed on, I got offered a YTS, which is like what you get offered when you're 16. You get offered um, like, um, a sco- like a scholarship, they call it now. So they offered me that one was 16. And my dad, in his wisdom, said, um, you're better off staying at school and doing your A-levels. I did quite well in my GCSEs and stuff. So I was like, right, I'll do that then. So I, I didn't do the scholarship. I stayed at school, which at the time was like a, quite a big decision because most kids didn't do that. But I ended up, um, Kevin Keegan was there. So I trained a lot with Newcastle and um, played for Newcastle. Then halfway through, Kevin Keegan just um, decided for whatever reason, he was just like, um, that I wasn't really going to play. Now, I don't know why that was. I never really got a massive explanation whether or not that was because I was at school and I wasn't training in the week. So I left Newcastle halfway through and then signed for Sunderland about two months later, which was like drastic. Didn't go down well with me pals that 
But um, yeah, so I ended up moving to Sunderland when I was 17, 16, 17. You made your Sunderland debut, as you mentioned, Sunderland, against yeah. Ipswich, coming on as a sub for Mickey Gray in the 64th minute. What are your memories of your debut and how did it feel? Yeah, we flew, I remember we flew down. So bear in mind, I've just le- I'd left school probably sort of three months before doing my year levels. And then it would have been August when the season started. So I remember just, I remember just the squad going up. And um, I was in the squad, and you only had like two sub two substitutes back then. So I was one of the one of two substitutes. We flew down. I remember being nervous. Didn't really know any of the lads, and just like absolutely terrified. You know, like getting dressed beforehand, putting the kit on. Like ex ex probably ten percent excited, ninety percent terrified. <laughs> and then um, so it just warmed up. And everything then Peter Reed just said, I think we were losing at the time. I can't remember what I can't remember if I think 2-0 or something. Peter Reed just went, You going on, Sam? And I just remember as well, it was just like a bit of a blur. I remember doing quite well because I was just getting the ball and just running. And I, I think I made like five or six bursts down the wing. And um, yeah, it was all right. I remember after the game, buzzing after the game. So maybe debut. I think we lost 2-0 or 3-0. Everybody else was fuming and kicking off, and Peter Reed shouting and swearing and threatening everybody like he. Like he often did, and I was just sat there feeling, you know, inside absolutely thrilled that I'd made my debut in what would be like the old championship it, when I was eighteen. You know, just let and after just leaving school, so it was amazing, really. So as you mentioned there, Peter Reed was was manager at the time, and am I right in thinking you got promoted in the first season? So from Division yeah. One into yeah. the Premier League. Yeah. What was that? What was that first season like? Well, it was it was incredible. I just thought football was going to be easy. I thought I'm just going to play in the Premier League for the rest of my life and you know earn thousands of pounds and re- retire when I'm 34 and go and play golf in Portugal. And that obviously didn't three years didn't really work out like that. But that first season, we got a, a medal for winning, like I said, what would have been the championship. I think I made. I think I only started a handful of games, but I was sub sub all the time. I think we had. I think we went to two subs. It might have even been three. Two subs and a keeper. Um, that was coming on regularly, so it was absolutely incredible. So I just gone from a student doing the year levels, then I was I signed a, I signed a contract for one year contract. Then I then I got offered a three year contract, double my money, but I was getting we were getting appearance money and you get bonuses if you're top of the league. So if we were in the top three or something or whatever it was, it was something like seven hundred pound. And, and and every time I was coming on, I was getting seven hundred pound, which double my wages. So I was 18, suddenly earning like a right few quid thinking this. And I got a medal at the end of the season. I thought, this, this football game's easy. I've, <laughs> I've cracked it. I'm done. I'm sorted. I'm sorted for life. But it didn't quite work out like that, unfortunately. In football, things are always quite as straightforward. Earning about £1,500 a week, I imagine at the age of 18, that is a lot of money for a teenager in the North East. What? Did eighteen-year-old Sam spend his money on? Oh, not wasted it. You know, like, <laughs> I did. I mean, I did. I didn't have. Unfortunately, my, my mum died when I was young, and my dad died when I was seventeen, eighteen. So I didn't really have any guidance. So I was like a young lad at eighteen. I lived in a flat with my little brother who was sixteen. Was earning a, like, like you said, like a lot of money for my for a lad my age. And no advice. He didn't get any financial advice there, how to use it. You know, obviously, 
you should have invested it, you should have saved it, you should have done whatever. But it was just dropping into, it was dropping, it was still dropping into my building society account. So I was just withdrawing it and spending it. So I was off to Magaluf, Ayanapa, Dublin. Like, it was great fun. <laughs> it was great fun, but it wasn't what you'd call planning for the future. But, you know, you're 18, this is, and you see the danger nowadays with these kids getting this money. I think nowadays they are better protected and they've got agents, financial advisors, and everybody helping them out. But we didn't have that back then. So I'm like, you know, just spend it, wasted all, wasted all of it <laughs> at the time. You know, you, it just wasn't even thought about then. Then they bought, I remember, you know, you buy a car, I bought a car, then I bought a flat. So I was just constantly spending it at all with no, I don't know, no consideration for the future. It's good fun though. So good fun. You only live once. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we've done a little bit of digging and found a few photos. Um, oh, here we go. From so your career. I just wanted to. Hopefully, I'll be able to share my screen and show you. And I just wanted to kind of tell us about the photo, what memory it brings back, and and kind yeah. of what what you can think, what you think about when you see it. Hey, can you see that? Okay. Yeah, that's that first one, the one on the left there, where I'm, where I'm having a shot, and the keeper saves it. That was in. That was something like the second, or third last game of the season, and we needed to win just to, um, to I think to probably to be champions, um, and that was about twenty minutes to go, fifteen minutes to go, and I remember the balls come, and I've had a great chance to score what would have been the winner. But it's bounced off the keeper's legs, come back, hit me on the head, and gone out. And if that had gone in, that would have been the goal that took Sunderland up. That would have been my claim to fame forever. But unfortunately, the keeper saved it, and um, it was never to be. We drew nil nil, and we went up as champions anyway. But that was like a miss. You know, talk about them little, tiny little moments where you got a chance to score the winner and be remembered for that forever. Unfortunately, I missed it. And okay, what about this one? What is that one there? Where's that one come from? Look like that. I'm sure it's like some kind of wham tribute thing. I'm like, I don't know what that is. I'd like to think that it's some kind of fancy dress and that wasn't me just thinking I'm ready for a night out in in Newcastle. I hope Might so. Be Shrewsbury. Even more so <laughs> Shrewsbury. I don't know what happened there. Look at look at that. That's all. That I remember that was my Italian teacher when I was at um my school. I went to an old boys like Catholic school, so it was a good school. It's quite posh, and I did Italian GCSE, and that was. And we had um we had a couple of Italian students who came over, and they were pretty good footballers. So yeah, that that was um an Italian teacher. So I presume that's an Italian newspaper there. We used to we used to read Italian news. What's your What's your Italian like these days? Not too bad. Ho studiato un po' di italiano alla scuola. So that's, I studied a little bit of Italian at school. Say, so, for I do a beer per favore, I can order two. I can order. I can order a couple of beers. <laughs> the hotel room. So uh, you were ready for that big money move to Italy then? I was just preparing, preparing, building up for the for for this big move, big move to Juventus or into Milan. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. I went to Shrewsbury instead. <laughs> what about this one? That's that's my old primary school team photo. That that's so that was me. That was probably I would have been in what year six eleven there. So nineteen eighty eight. It says. Yeah. That's, oh yeah. So yeah, just that would have been year eleven twelve there. So like I said I wasn't the best player, but I was captain. I think it was just because I was had the longest skinniest legs by the looks of it. <laughs> Couldn't find any socks. 
couldn't find any socks to fit me. My legs were my legs were that long. <laughs> I wasn't the greatest team ever assembled. That I don't think. I don't think there was, no, that team there didn't go on to achieve very much. Some belters uh, there, some absolute classics coming out there, isn't there? We've 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 raided Twitter and social media. In 1997, you played for Sunderland against Arsenal in the FA Cup. What was it like playing against Patrick? Is it Vera? Vera. Yeah. Oh, Vera. Uh, Dennis Bergkamp, yeah. Paul Merson and more. What are your yeah. memories of that? I think I played against Arsenal a couple of times. One time I came on at centre-forward and I played against Tony Adams and Steve Bowles. And I was like 18, 19 and they were men. And I got absolutely bullied. Like I was jumping up for headers and they were just bouncing me and moving me around and I was a bit out of my depth. I think the next time I played, I think I came on a sub sub again. But playing against Vieira. Now I'd always been like Vieira's my age. I think he's probably about 47 now. He might he might be a year older. But I'd always been faster than everybody and sort of and strong for my age. Um, like at 18, 19. But I remember playing against Patrick Vieira, and I've t- I think I've told this to loads of people. I've knocked the ball past him at Highbury, and I used to just fly past people, and he's just matched me stride for stride. Then he's put his big arm across me, just moved me out of the way, <laughs> like got the ball, ran back. I've sprinted back after him as well. He just put his arm across me again and stopped me getting back at him, and then he's laid the ball off. And I remember he was the same, about the same age as me, and I just thought, that's when, you know, I think a lot of footballers will talk about you get a reality check where it's, hold on a minute, like, that's the level you've got to be at. And he was a different level. So I suddenly thought, I'm not as good as what I thought I was here. And, like, I mean, he was one of the best midfielders the Prem's ever seen, but he was way, way too good for me. And I just thought, oh, I need to think, I need to knuckle down and work harder or come up with a plan B. You mentioned some top players there. And when you played, were you ever one for, like, swapping shirts? Got any... Never, no, nah, I, I never did that really. I don't like. I, I don't. I wouldn't judge someone for doing that. I know there's yeah, either think oh, you shouldn't swap shirts because you're in the heat of battle. Looking back, I think I wish I'd got Vieira's shirt. But I think at the time I was just thinking, well, I'll be, I'll be playing Arsenal. I'll be playing Arsenal twice a season for the for the next fifteen years. So I don't need to worry. I'll just <laughs> I get one in the future. If I'd known that, if I'd known I'd have been playing Grimsby three years later, I'd have made sure I'd have got Vieira's shirt. I'd have got Merson's. I would have got. I would have got everyone's. <laughs> I, I just wanted to quickly ask because uh, I got a friend who's a big Salop fan, and it it sounds negative on paper, but he's genuinely curious because he wanted me to ask this to you directly, Sam. But he was wondering what was the worst kit you ever played in. The couple of the shoes you away kit yeah. weren't weren't great. It's it's not so much the design; they were just massive. Like I just got a couple of shoes being kits in the garage. Now I got them out for the kids. And it is huge. And I think I'm probably a little bit heavier than what well, I am a bit heavier when I played football. And like my kids are going, What what is that, Dad? Because that was the style at the time. Massive, massive kits and big long shorts, which I think I was just after that short shorts. Now obviously they're all skin tight, aren't they? The shirts, but back then, some of them should be ones were after I've got a red one. Honestly, fit it would fit over my car. It is absolutely huge. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Thanks for answering that. You then had free loans at Chester, Stoke and Shrewsbury. How did it feel to leave Sunderland and why did you choose to settle at Shrewsbury? Yeah, well, um, I went to Chester on loan. 
I'd been injured. I went to Chester on loan. That was Kevin Ratcliffe. So he took me to Chester on loan. And we got in the playoffs and I had like a brilliant time there. Loved it. Great set of lads. I think we won we won loads of games. We just lost in the playoffs. I think it was to it was to Swan um Swansea it was that year. Then I went to Stoke on loan. That was a really good experience. That was Gary Megson. He was like as the manager who was he was crazy. He wasn't really my cup of tea, really, as a manager, but yeah, he could set up a team and he was quite good. So I, I enjoyed that time. And then the reason why I went to Shrewsbury was because Kevin Ratcliffe had got the Shrewsbury job. So as soon as he got the, Sh- the Shrewsbury job, he inquired about me. And I can't remember where I was, but Peter Reid said not at the moment. And then I think later on, I wasn't really in the team. Someone had signed a few other players. So I went to Shrewsbury with Kevin Ratcliffe and I played on loan for a few months, I think. And then I think he came come in in the summer and Shrewsbury bought me in the, in the summer. For fifty thousand pound, which absolute snip! <laughs> what a bargain! <laughs> what a bargain that is! So you won promotion with Shrewsbury. Was it under Jimmy Quinn from the conference into yeah League Jimmy two or Division Two? What was yeah, that like? Got, re- got relegated. That was a, that was that was probably one of my favourite seasons in football. I've spoken about that loads of time. A great set of lads. Brilliant atmosphere. And being in the conference was amazing. The Shrewsbury fans were incredible. So we went to Lay RMI, which must have had a which must have not had an average attendance of about four hundred. We went there with Shrewsbury and we took sixteen hundred. Like and we just it just took everywhere we went, we just took over. So you know, it should be a massive club in the conference that year. And um, and we won most of our games, especially at home. I think we only lost once or twice all season. I played pretty much every game. Barring a, a couple of suspensions, I think it was just a really successful season. Then it all finished with win the penalty shootout at Stoke, um, Stoke's ground. So it was just an amazing, amazing experience. That that's probably one of my favourite seasons in football, just because of the lads you're with and, and winning. Obviously, with when you're winning, everybody gets on. But in a football team, if you're winning games, you know the atmosphere is brilliant. Everybody because oh, it's a, it's a really good dressing room. Of course, it's a good dressing room when you're winning. If you lose four on the bounce, well, guess what? The lads are a bit unhappy. They start having a go at each other, and the dressing room suffers. You mentioned the uh, about suspensions. What were you quite a, a feisty player? Did you have a few few red cards? Oh, I, I had a few. Um, some were probably a little bit unjust. Like, <laughs> um, I don't know. I had a couple of things. Like, just a couple of like, I don't know. Yeah, in my first season, I remember getting a lot of yellow cards. Um, I think I think I think I got. My first season, I got 13 yellow cards and scored two goals. And I remember the manager saying to me, next season, can you get two yellow cards and score 13 <laughs> goals? That would be better. Um, yeah, just, I, would, I don't know. I would, I would like to think I was like, aggressive and strong. So as a winger, most wingers were sort of, you know, aren't known for tackling, whereas I used to like tackling. I used to enjoy the physical confrontation. I used to try and smash the right back early, early on. Just to let them know we're there, and then, the, and then uh, like the right backs as well, would make titles back. I, I used to like that part of the game, really. Lots of Shrewsbury Town fans have sent us questions to ask you. Are you ready? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go on then. Go on. Okay. Terry Jones asks, "Do you fancy a game on the weekend against Port Vale?" <laughs> Every time I go to the match, I go with like I go with me, I go with me kids, and I go with me mates. Hey, boys, like, have you got your boots on? Have you got your boots? And I was thinking, there's no way. I, I played in that Dave Edwards' testimonial. I don't know whether any of you went to that. I don't know if you went to that, Adam. Yeah, we were, yeah. Honestly, okay. I was 
apps. I couldn't believe how bad I was. I thought I would be better than what I was. And I was so, afterwards, I was like, what has happened there? I mean, I know I've been sat in the office for 10 years and some of them were still playing. But just like Z, I thought I was still relatively fit, but just zero sharpness. Like, it was embarrassing. There was no way I could play to any sort of stance. I even get, like, Sunday league teams, like, quite a few say to me, oh, Sam, do you know you want to come play for Sunday? And I was like, no, because I'd be, I'd be rubbish in that as well now and just embarrass myself. <laughs> and I'm such a disappointment to me kids because I keep telling them what to do and they never saw me play um, professionally. And I come off after that Dave Edwards testimonial and they, they both went, Dad, you were awful there. Yeah. So I've got no credibility with my kids now whatsoever. So when I tell them I'm a good player, they go, no, you weren't, Dad. We saw you play. And I was like, yeah, you saw me play at 46. But anyway. Yeah, we, we were there. My memory of that game is seeing Gav Cohen with a with a header, bullet header, top corner. Yeah, yeah. Flew in, yeah. Oh. He's still off celebrating. He's still talking about that now. He's like, that was my... Every time we have a pint, Gav's going up. That was my goal, you know, Sam. And I'm like, Please. <laughs> <laughs> no one, no one cares, Gav. No one cares. But... It was his little moment of fame, wasn't it? So we're not going to take that away from him. Roger Jarvis says that Sam could run down the wing all day and take anyone on. He would beat a number of players and then cross the ball out for a goal kick. He was very exciting to watch. I just wish he had a final ball in him. Well, that that's what I tell everybody, isn't it? If I could have, cro- if I could have. Delivered like with the quality of some of the other lads I played with the crosses. I would have, who knows where I would have played with. That's my standing joke, isn't it? If it wasn't for the ball, I would have played for England. That was just my final, the final cross and the final shot. But you know what? Back then as well, he didn't practice it. So like, why I didn't practice shooting more and crossing more, I don't know. Because yeah, all the bits that everybody found hard to do, the sort of taking people on and getting to the byline, I I found quite easy. But the sort of then the easy bit would go wrong. That's why I didn't score enough goals. But yeah, that's I think that's probably the opinion of the vast majority of Shrewsbury fans who watch me play. <laughs> exciting, but exciting, but no end product. Yeah, I've had that. <laughs> I've, I've had that for about fifteen years. But <laughs> that's why you end up at our level, like in League One and League Two, playing where you are, because then the top lads do that, but then they produce all the time as well, and so. Everybody at our levels got something missing, probably from their game. That's why they're playing in League One and League Two rather than the top of the Championship or in the Premiership. Gareth asks if you could be remembered for one game in your career, what would it be and why? I, t- I tell you what, my favourite game wasn't playing for Shrewsbury. I was playing playing for. I scored two playing for Tranmere, and I had an absolute worldie. And I had a few games for Tranmere like that. I had a little spell. Whereas when you're just playing well and you just you played in, instinctively, you know, in football you talk about being in the zone. So I had little spells in my career where you're playing and you just and you're playing so well and it seems effortless and you just you seem on fire. And like I had plenty of spells where it was the opposite, where I was having a nightmare. But I think there was a game for Tram, yeah. I think it was Oldham. We won four one, I scored two. I remember playing really well. I mean, there's quite a few games for Shrewsbury as well. That couldn't really pick out a single game that I played really well. I mean, Sunderland as well. I had a few wears, mostly coming on as sub that were quite memorable. I don't know. I couldn't pick out. I don't think I could pick out one game for me career that really stands out, other than a Tramia game because the only, the only time I scored two in a game was was for them. It's a bit of a different question now. 
What is one question that you would never ever answer? What's one question I'd never ever answer? Who, who's my favorite child? That's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. If we we spoke to your wife, yeah, if we spoke to your wife, how do you think she would describe you in three words? Annoying, um, <laughs> selfish, um, uh, forgetful. Three <laughs> 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 negatives there, and I should probably try and think of a po- I'm sure she would come up with a positive, but yeah, probably. I mean, she doesn't want to because sort of like hold the family together and does everything. She says, like, we talk about she's always got seven or eight tabs open, like on a computer, thinking about everything else, whereas I've only ever got one open and just thinking about what I'm doing right at this moment. I don't know whether that's a male thing, but it seems it's probably yeah. Yeah. the feedback from me pals is that's a male thing, that you're just worried about what's directly in front of you, whereas she's thinking about everything that's happening in the weekend and above and beyond so that's why she'd probably see it annoying thoughtless what would your wife say is your worst habit she'd probably say something about me i always thinking i'm right or never admit never admitting when i'm when i'm tired because she'll always go you must be tired i go no i'm fine i can always <laughs> just say i'm fine regardless of whatever's <laughs> happening and that's still that's a throwback from the football like macho nonsense that you have as a professional footballer that especially back when I was a player, that you would never admit you were nervous, you'd never admit you were worried, you'd never admit you were scared. You would just always be like, "Yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine." So I'm trying to get better and better at that now. I'm trying to be more vulnerable and make sure when I'm worried and nervous. But I'll always just go, "Yeah, I'm fine. Whatever's happening. Yeah, I'm fine. Are you tired? No, I'm not. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. Even though I'm not, I'm probably worried or I've got. I am tired." Well, on the podcast, we always like to try and do a little bit of digging and try and to find a little bit more about you. So we have spoke to Holly, your wife. Oh, nice. And <laughs> we did ask her to describe you in three words. And oh, I no. think you, you, you were a bit harsh on yourself. Oh, that's nice. And I hope this is going to be three positives. Yeah, well, she said you were ambitious, yeah. beautiful, and funny. Beautiful? I mean, that's a stretch. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm funny. I wouldn't say so, so she always thinks I'm funny. Ambitious? I would say that. Probably, maybe not like what he is... In the same way I used to be, beautiful. I think that's very generous from her. I don't think she's ever, she's never ever said that to my face. Beautiful. I think that's a stretch, isn't it? I think, I don't know, beautiful is probably pushing it. And then we continued by asking her what your worst habit was. And she said, not listening to her instructions. Yeah, that is right, actually. I said, I also said, the thing is, Holly, you give, you do talk a lot and you give out a lot of information. So I said, like, you know, I've studied a bit about education and, and you, you know, you can only hold so much, you know, you cogn- otherwise it's cognitive overload. So I can only hold between three and five things in your short-term memory. So if you give me nine instructions, I'm not going to remember all of them. So, so it's, it's her fault, not your fault. That. Yeah, so it's her fault. Not <laughs> the science of how people process information. We... Astro, I have another question about oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> we asked her if... You hosted a dinner party with uh, three celebrities. Which ones would you invite? Oh my goodness! It's like isn't Mister and Mrs. This isn't it. What what would you? Oh my goodness! Who would she think you would invite? Would she think I would invite? 
I think who who is somebody who I would really respect. I, I'm trying to think someone from like so someone from like a music world, someone like um, Liam Gallagher. I think of like a politician, which you wouldn't say someone but like Barack Obama, I wouldn't have thought. Someone like Alex Ferguson, maybe from the sporting world, or Alan Shearer. Have any of them right? So I got zero <laughs> so far. <laughs> oh. Liam Gallagher, Alan Shearer, Alex Ferguson. That's who, yeah. Well, she's gone. Gaza? Mm, yeah, I did. I used to love Gaza, but I don't know whether we, what sort of company you'd be now, but okay. Margot Robbie. Yeah, good shout. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and Gav Cowan. Gav Cowan. No, I wouldn't agree with that. I, wouldn't <laughs> I, see, I see him all the time. I've had a million dinners with him. Like, no, I'm not. I, the Margot Robbie ones, yeah, is fair enough. Yeah, I never. I should have thought of her. She, yeah, she's she, got a, a good personality, isn't she? Yeah, very good personality. Really interesting. We've got a lot of similar interests. I think we're getting really well. <laughs> you did a business degree at the age of twenty-seven. Yeah. Why did you realise that you needed to do uh, something in preparation after football? Yeah, because yeah, I realised, and like when I was eighteen. Um, you realise when it was 25, 26, and you're suddenly getting contracts for sort of two years and you're not always sure where you're going to be. So I was just starting to think, actually, I need to have like a backup plan here, a plan B for when football finishes. And I remember at the time, all the lads were going, oh, what are you doing? Why are you rushing off? Go and doing your, go and doing your, your college work. And I would be thinking, well, because you need, you need a backup plan because everybody's going to have to get a job when they finish playing football unless... You've, um, unless you've been in the Premier League, which is only you know a, a fifth or a sixth of a fifth of probably professional footballers, so you need you need to have something else. And even if you played in the Premier League, you still want to want to do something. You retire at thirty four, thirty five. That's a long, long time, isn't it? To the rest of your life, you know, you're not even potentially halfway through your life. So you need something else. So business degree seemed just something that was quite generic. That would give me a range of skills, and it fitted in with it fitted in with my training schedule. So I think it was on like a Wednesday and a Thursday night, which I knew I was always free. So that's why I did that. Then good re good research, by the way, Tom. Yeah, so we need to get you on in the stiffs because the, the research we do on in the stiffs is slapdash compared to yours. <laughs> nice. We read that after leaving Shrewsbury, you agreed to join Grimsby. But then made a U-turn and joined Tranmere instead. Can you tell us about what happened, please? So initially, I was going to sign for Darlington. At the time, it was a nightmare for my wife and my because I just had we just had our daughter, and I was going to sign for I was going to sign for Yeovil. Then I was thinking about signing for Darlington. There were quite a few offers at the time. Then I agreed to sign for Grimsby. So I went up to Grimsby and I was like saying to my wife, I want to sign for Grimsby, what's it like? And I was going, it's a nice little seaside place, good for good for fish and chips, trying to like find a sell sell that to her. But um when I was driving back from Grimsby, I hadn't signed, but I'd sort of agree with Russell Slade to sign. And then Tramia rang me up. And I remember like Brian Little was like, Are you going to Grimsby? And I was like, Well, I'm thinking about it. And he's like, How are you gonna get there by boat? And I was just going, Well, it's not <laughs> It's obviously it's not necessarily my first choice, but it's a pretty good offer. And he said, "Well, what about coming to Tranmere for a year?" 
So I ended up saying, yeah, I'll do that then. So I had to ring Russell Slade and say, I know I said I was going to sign, but I've changed my mind. And Russell Slade was fuming. So he went and went in the papers and slated me saying about how um, I'd agreed and then I'd gone back on my word and stuff, which was right. I had done, but unfortunately, a better offer come, came along. And I was thinking, well, say Russell's... It, I thought if Russell was going to say that said he's going to be manager of Grimsby, but Chelsea come in for him, he'd go to Chelsea. Yeah. So that's you know that's the way it is. So I was just like, well, I'm not going to lose any sleep over at Russell. I am. I'm. I'm now going to sign for Tramia because I think with like I love it when the clubs always say the players aren't loyal, and I think well, if you lose form or you get injured, the clubs are quick to ship you out yeah. all the time. So I didn't really feel guilt. I didn't really feel guilty about that. I just thought, I'm sorry, Russell, but I've got a better offer, closer to home, better for my young family. So I'm doing that. But yeah, he wasn't particularly happy. I never really come across him after that, which is probably just as well. <laughs> Sam, what about because in football, football's probably one of the only sports and and businesses where you kind of can lose your job and be jobless for for a little bit. I know it happens to every footballer, it happened to you a number of times getting released from different clubs. Yeah. How did you cope with being released and kind of that uncertainty of of where you're going next? And I imagine that probably had an effect on like your mental health and things like that. Yeah, it's it's really it's really difficult. Again, like you put you put a brave face on it. And I mean there's quite a few of us often in similar positions. There's quite a lot of friends obviously as you do in football. So it happened a few times where you sort of got released and you're waiting for the phone to ring. I mean when I first left Shrewsbury I was quite lucky because I got quite a few offers. So the phone was ringing quite a lot. So, uh, you know, that was all right. But then there was, um, I'm trying to think, well, what year it was. I can't remember what year it was. It might have been, I think it was after I left Northampton. No, it wasn't Northampton. It must have been, I, I, I can't remember exactly. But I remember being in America on holiday and we had this expensive holiday in Disney and I still didn't have a club sorted. And we were on holiday in, I think, start of June in pre-season in July I remember, you know, enjoyed the holiday, but constant in the back of my mind going, like, where's your next paycheck coming from? Because your pay would finish. I think you'd get paid to the end of June. So then after that, you know, you've gone from whatever you're getting paid to, to zero. So, you know, it, it's a scary job. It's not like being a teacher now is where you know you know what you're getting all the time. And that's the difficulty in football. And you could be anywhere in the country. So you're waiting for the phone to ring all the time. I remember there's me and my mate, Mark Convery, who wrote Newcastle a few times. I'll be like, wait, you're just waiting for your phone to ring. And I'll be like, is my phone working? Can someone <laughs> check my phone's work? Because no one's ringing. <laughs> it's a real uncertain time, really uncertain. Now, looking back, you know, yeah, like I was definitely anxious, really anxious about it a couple of times. But you didn't get any help or anything then. You know, there was no sort of support. There was no, there was no, there was no knowledge about how it was affecting your mental health. It was, and that was never a concern. It was just like you get, you know, deal with it, get on with it, and just hope the phone rings. But so, yeah. would you, when you didn't have a club, would you or did players actively kind of search your club, or were you literally just waited yeah. for someone to phone, or were you, would you do stuff to try and make clubs notice you? Yeah, I mean, there was trials and things, but I never, I never really did that. I never had to go on trials. Um, I remember, I can't know what age I was. I remember writing to a couple of clubs. People used to write to clubs. A lot of my friends would write letters to clubs for trials, but it would, it would be a lot of word of mouth. So you get a phone call off, but also you get phone calls off managers just testing the water, just seeing, just seeing what you're doing. 
I'd get, I'd still get phone calls off managers, but I'd be thinking like I, I remember sometimes they would ring me and then I'd ring them back. Like Dean Son, Dean Son is when he's at Wrexham. He offered me a contract, but it was like half the money I was on, and I was so thirty three at the at the time, and I was going, you know, and it was full on with Dean Son. you know, you're training every day, Saturday, Sundays, everything, and I, I had a family. And I was trying to, I was starting my te- um becoming a teacher, doing you know just doing my qualifications. And I was thinking, oh, I don't really know about that. So I kept like hanging on. So it was happening over the summer where I hadn't agreed to sign. But you'd often know. And I remember I rang him back and I was like, oh, well, you know, is there any chance of improved off? And he was like, well, not really, Sam. But, you know, we need you to get a move on with your decision. So it was like things like that. You're playing like games with games with the, the manager, you know, and it's like they were there, there. He's got all, he had all the power because he, he, did, he wasn't desperate for me and I needed something sorted. It was different if you were like, Harland, isn't it, where you just sit back and your agent and you just wait for the phone to ring. You know, players lower down the leagues don't have that. You are you are literally waiting for your phone to ring. Or you can try and ring clubs. But also then, once you're ringing clubs, they know you're desperate. So back know? then, at that level, do you have an agent or are you doing it all yourself? Yeah, I, 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 did a, I did a couple of times. But I think the problem with agents is, you know, I mean, an agent, if you're, if you're Jack Grealish's agent... You, like you've won the lottery, haven't you? Everyone's going to sign him. You're going to take a big cut. You're all right. The players lower down the leagues need an agent because they've got to try and get your name out there. But that's a lot of hard work for them then to take whatever it might be ten percent of. Well, there'll be no, there'll probably be no signing on fee. You know, you so how how the agent's going to get paid? They're only going to make maximum a couple of thousand pound off someone in the lower league. So it's a lot of work for an agent to ring around and do all that. Whereas if you've got Jack Grealish, someone rings up, yeah, well, off, you know, you then you get a solicitor to go through the contract and everything. So it's easy work, it's a lot easier than having to graft lower down. So yeah, I had, I had an agent a couple of times, but I wouldn't say that they weren't really much good for me. We just wanted to stop the questions about your career at the moment and player, would you rather the game? Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. Come on then. Night in or night out. I'm going to say, which is really boring, night in. I'm not surprised at that, but night in. Uh, beach holiday or city break? Beach holiday. But even that's changing as I get older as well. But yeah. Would you rather talk to animals or speak every language? Speak every language. Okay. Would you rather explore space or explore the bottom of the ocean? I think explore the bottom of the ocean. Is it true that we know more about space than we do about the depths of the ocean? I think I read that somewhere. I think so, yeah. 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 Mm. Would you rather go forward 200 years and see your future family or go back 200 years and meet your ancestors? Go back 200 years, I think, and see me ancestors. So we've done a little bit more more digging. and we've Research stopped... is phenomenal. I know, well... This is a bit easier. We spoke to Gav and Dave Edwards, your oh. your your good friends and in the stiff my buddies. my my yeah my in the stiff uh, deputies. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've asked them some questions, and the answer is either Gav, Sam, or Dave. Oh, yeah. so we've already asked them these questions, so we've got their answers. Okay, and then um, we'll see see what your answers are. Right. So the three of you are all twenty five years old. Yeah. Who wins a hundred meter race? Me, but that's not 
like that's not even up for debate. Anybody who said anything, like me first, Dave about 20 metres behind me, and Gav, you barely out the starting blocks. Yeah, that's what they said as well. Yeah. Okay, so you're all 25 years old again. Who would win a marathon? Dave. Definitely Dave. Great engine. Dave would win it. I would be miles behind. Gav would be, again, barely out the starting blocks. Okay, so the three of you are on a TV quiz show. Who would win? Me. I think that. Me. It depends what it depends what the topic is. If it's golf, if it's golf, it would be it would be Dave. Other other than that, I would like to think I would win that. Well, I'm interested in I'm really interested to know what those two said about that one. So Dave said Dave he would win. Oh, yeah. Gav said he would win. And you <laughs> said you would win. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The three of you, the three of you are in a three-way boxing match. Yeah. Who would win? Me. So Gav, Gav, Gav said he would, Gav would win. Yeah. Dave said you would win. And yeah. you said you would win. Dave's right then, Dave's right. Is Gav, did Gav ever answer anything other than himself for that? Because maybe for the 100 <laughs> meters, but otherwise Gav's seeing himself, isn't he? Yeah. Okay, so the three of you are dropped on a desert island. Who would survive the longest? Oh, that's a that's a good one. I would say Dave. I just think he would he would live he would he would maximize every every ounce of his um of of his ability like, of survival. He would he would know what to do. He would eat exactly the right thing. He would but he would move it make conserve his energy at exactly the right amount. I'm going to say Dave. What, Dave, what don't Dave tell me Gav both said Gav. Did they? Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so the three of you are cooking a three-course meal for a dinner party. Who yeah. cooks the best meal? That's that's it. There's not a lot. There's not a lot in that, Dave. There's not like that's that's a low standard that is. But I would say Dave. <laughs> they both said Gav. Did they? <laughs> I'm, I'm missing something with Gavin. Gavin cooked the best meal. Gav has never, ever, ever made me anything. He's made me a cup of tea about three times, and that is it. So I wouldn't know where I got that from. Gav's a bit of a dark horse, isn't he? Yeah, obviously, evidently. Okay, so out of the three of you, who would be the best prime minister? I I don't think like I don't think Gav would. Like, we get Gav would divide opinion massively <laughs> if he was the prime minister. I think Dave would be very good. He, um, um, let's say Dave. I think Dave would say the right things and conduct himself appropriately at all times. They both said Gav. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. But was Dave sat with Gav when we were when he was doing this? He might be, or, or he was drunk. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Gav's Gav's come out well so far. Yeah, he has come out very well. I expected Gav to come out well from himself. Um, I would expect that, but Dave's been very, very generous. Okay, who would be the last to buy a round of drinks at the bar? That is easy, easy. Anybody says anybody other than Dave for that is lying. Dave last by a mile. What Gav said, Dave. Yeah, and Dave said it were you. Well, I think Gav Gav is extremely generous. So Gav first. 
Um, me just behind him, Dave, hundred percent. That's Dave's lack of self awareness. That Dave seeing not not seeing himself. Definitely, Dave last to buy a round of drinks. He is by far the tightest out of us three. Peeling orange in his pocket, Dave could. <laughs> okay, last last one of these questions. So you're recording a podcast tomorrow night. Which one of you is likely most likely to be late? Both of them two, um, but I'd say Gav probably ten minutes late, Dave twenty minutes late. So that's Dave. <laughs> yeah, they both said Dave. But even Dave admitted that. That's even Dave said Dave. It's a little bit of self awareness, eventually. <laughs> yeah. Does that happen quite often? Yes, it happens all the time. What What happens is, like, I've I've been rubbish with you, Adam, off of this one, cancel it. But that's normally that is the norm times three for Gav and Dave just comes in when he wants. We'll say half past eight start. Dave will get there at 20 to nine and just go, sorry. And be like, you're not sorry. Are you be- you're not sorry because you did it last week and you'll, you'll do it again next week. I think Dave thinks because Dave, Dave, Dave even, even though he comes across quite humble is probably a little bit big time, isn't he? Because of the, because of wolves and whales and he knows that we need him to be on the podcast. So we have to wait for him. He's he's the star, is he? He's well, he's he's the, he's the best footballer was, and he's the biggest name. So he knows we're going to wait from. So he just he just rocks up ten minutes late in his Tesla. So basically, you say if Gav turned up late, you just start without him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gav starts up late, we just crack on. <laughs> Picture Path is an award-winning visual timeline app that's empowering individuals with autism. This free app provides a simple way for users to plan out activities, such as going to a match or theatre using structured timelines that reduce stress and anxiety. Users create a visual timeline that caters their specific daily needs, allowing them to prepare for activities, events and routines. PicturePath provides a structure that enhances communication, promotes independence, improves memory recall and supports users to manage their day with confidence. Whether for personal use or in educational settings, PicturePath is the ultimate tool for individuals with additional needs empowering them to manage their schedules, track progress, and enjoy more activities. Picture Path. Download the app today. Another club you joined was Wrexham. In your first season with the club, they got relegated out of the Football League, ending yeah. the club's 87-year stay in the Football League. Well, that sounds that's good then, isn't it? Thanks for bringing that up. Can you tell us a little bit about that season and what are your memories of relegation? Yeah, I mean that was horrible. I I loved the I loved it at Wrexham. Again, we had like, amazing fans, brilliant club, and um, really good set, really good set of lads. And Brian Brian Little was then. He brought me in. I was I know Brian really well, so I really wanted to do well for him. He brought in a load of a load of different lads, and um, it just never quite clicked. We had all these different characters come in. We had Danny Sonner. Coming in midfield, who was amazing character. He was so funny. We lost, we lost the game two one, and Danny Sonner scored a penalty, and we're sitting there after the game, and all the lads are all like down and upset, and you know, and everybody's a bit disheartened. And Danny sat there, and he's just taking his boots off, and he'd scored, and he went, "Well, I did my job, lads. If you'd all done what I did, would have won eleven two because he scored." <laughs> so we were just like. Danny, like that's it's too soon to be making jokes about that. Like we could we could get relegated, but um yeah, good set of lads. But yeah, that was sad, really sad getting relegated. But I've still got a lot of happy memories from Wrexham. You know, I had a, had a, a good time there. I know I didn't go down we, necessarily well with Shrewsbury fans because obviously 
big rival, big rival. The Wrexham's a very different club now to when I was now to when I was there. So what do you think? Well, next year we could get a, a Wrexham Shrewsbury game. Yeah, that'd be big. Either Shrewsbury go down or Wrexham go up. Yeah. No. Well, yeah, I'd like to think that that's in that's in League One. But yeah, I mean that'd be great. We want that. We want that for the area. I want Wrexham to come up, and we want the derbies. They're the great games, aren't you? What you remember? We we have a list of people who who have who you have played with at some point in your career, and I want you to tell us what they were like, and if you have any stories or memories of them, are you ready? Yeah. Carl Murray. Carl Murray. Yeah, Carl Murray was a great lad. He was full of himself, having himself, but a great footballer, loads of ability. Yeah, he just never, it never quite, never quite clicked. But yeah, he would always like, he'd always mouth off at the wrong person. Like he'd always end up arguing, always end up falling out with people. But um, yeah, like a really good football. Probably never got, achieved his potential at Shrewsbury because he could have been really good. Like at its quick, he was strong. He he was a good lad. I used to knock about a little a little bit with him, and um, yeah, he used to get in a few scrapes. He did. Andrew Fleming. Andrew Fleming from Wrexham. Yeah, um, he was an amazing footballer. I wasn't really with him that much because he's a young lad. But he he was a he was a really talented football. I don't know what happened to him though. I, I wouldn't know what where, where his career went um, after Wrexham. But I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't really know much. I wouldn't know a lot about him apart from the fact he was a good, he was a really good young footballer. Um, let's have a quick quick look. So he went to Wrexham and then went to Morecambe and then finished his career at Morecambe. Did he? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I would I wouldn't wouldn't really know a lot a lot about him. Good player though. After a time. Football, you decided to move into education and become a teacher. Why did you decide to move into education? I'd, I'd done a bit of coaching with um, with Gav, with Crossbar, his business. And I'd done a business degree and I quite enjoyed coaching the kids. And I thought, hey, I could I could do this. Um, so I just thought, you know, I'd have a look. So I had a little look at secondary school. So I went to a secondary school and I did a couple of football lessons. I remember doing football with year nine girls and it was an absolute nightmare because all the year nine lads were all sat at the side of the pitch watching. So the girls didn't want to run or didn't want to like look uncool in front of all these lads. These lads are all shouting stuff. So then I did. I thought, oh, secondary school P looks hard work. So I thought, I'll have a look at primary. So I thought the kids might be a little bit, a little bit more engaged, a little bit more up for it. So I ended up then trying to be a um, primary school teacher. And then it went from there. So in your in your teaching career, when you were well, you are teaching when you what skills, if any, could you transfer from like the world of football into the world of education? Yeah, I think t- t- like teamwork, fitting in, fitting into the team, being part of the group. You know, it's really important that you know you've got an effective team, so you need your staff, your staff to get on. The same as what you do with football. And also sometimes feeling nervous and doing things like assemblies and presentations. So all that, I'd used to that feeling, used to that, you know, in your stomach, that nervous feeling. So when it came to interviews, presentations, assemblies, you know, talks to parents, you're all right because you used to having that feeling of, of nerves and actually, you know, I didn't mind it. It was comfortable. I was comfortable feeling like I used to feel like that probably every every week or every couple of weeks with matches. So that that was quite straightforward. Any ability to speak to people, you know, in football, 
you'd, you'd have a, such a range of people in the dressing room, but you'd also have to communicate with coaches, managers, chairmen, chief executives, fans, everything. So you're constantly speaking to all these different people from all these different walks of life. The same as being a teacher. So when you speak to parents, you're speaking to all these parents um, from a range of jobs, whether you know you could be a scaffolder, builder, unemployed, lawyer, solicitor, doctor, whatever, being able to communicate with all these people. So I found that part, speaking with parents, you know, pretty easy, really. I quite, you know, I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed parents' evening and stuff where a lot of teachers didn't. So skills like that, I'd say definitely, definitely are transferable. You are now a head teacher, but what I want to know is what was scarier, Ofsted or Peter Reid shouting at you? Yeah, Peter Reid shouting at you because at least, at least with Ofsted, there's never the threat of like physical of, of violence or getting punched. <laughs> Whereas with Peter Reid, you thought he used to say, you know, I'll rip your head off. So if you give the ball away again, we'll rip your head off. Yeah, I've never had an Ofsted inspector say that say that to me. So when yeah, when when Ofsted do come in, you know, and everybody's a bit worried that they're going to be a bit rude, and I'm like, yeah, after having Peter Reid and you know people like Gary Peters. Shouting and bawling, you fit this far away from your face, spitting in your face, threatening to rip your head off. I was thinking, I can, I can cope with, I can cope with an Ofsted inspector, like you know, asking me, I don't know, whatever it might be. So yeah, I'd say Peter Reed. There's not many things scarier as an eighteen, an eighteen or nineteen year old lad when you give the ball away. You haven't had the best of first halves, and you're walking into the, you're walking into the tunnel, and you can hear Peter Reed already shouting in the dressing room. You're just thinking, oh. My goodness, here we go. And he'd go around like that and he'd be bollocking everybody. And then suddenly you think he's coming to me in a minute. And then he'd go, and as for you, when you stop giving the ball away, you've given the ball away like the last seven times. And you just sit there and you just have to take it. I think that style of management's probably gone now. But it was effective. You know, they got got Sunderland to seventh in the Premier League three seasons in a row. In football you were in a male dominated industry and now as a head teacher you are in a very female dominated industry how have you changed and adapted your leadership style between the two different aspects of your career massively because you're straight from a dressing room where it's you know, you've got 25 and it is macho, testosterone fueled. You can't show any weakness. That's what it was like back then. I think it's a little bit different now. Whereas you, in the way you speak, in the way you address things, you can't do that in the, in the teaching world. So we would have a, like, you'd fall out with someone in training and you'd be grabbing your mate and you'd be like threatening and have a fight. Or sometimes there was fights in training. Yeah, that doesn't happen in the staff room. If it's, if if, if my maths, maths coordinator is not doing a very good job, I can't grab her by the throat and pin her up against pin her up against the wall and threaten threaten to beat her up. So it's very it's very 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 different. But it's still the same principles about you know being a leader is try how you get the best out of others. You know that's what Peter Reed, whether is in his own methods, was trying to get the best out of those players as a head teacher. That's exactly what you know. I'm what I'm trying to do get the best out of my staff. It's just how you do that looks a little bit different. And things you could see in the dressing room, you can't see it. You can't see in the staff room. So then, what what makes a good head teacher? What qualities do you need? Yeah, well, I don't know, and I'd like to think you know, and I wouldn't say I think I've got some good qual- some qualities, but things I'm still trying to develop. 
I think you've got to be able to listen to people. You've got to remember what it's like to be in the classroom because obviously I'm not teaching teaching all the time now, so having a full timetable. But it's just it's just making making listening to people. I think is a big thing, and not I think what I've done in the past is try and solve the problem. So when someone comes to me, I'd be like, right, how can I fix that? Whereas now it's listening. It's just listening to people and not just trying to solve it instantly because sometimes people just want to get things off their chest. But I think it's really important to have good systems in place, be really clear, open and transparent. I think that's massive as well. People just want honesty. I know as a footballer, I always just wanted honesty for my boss. You know, if something Brian Little would say to me, oh, Sam, I'm going to rest you today and keep you for Tuesday. And I'd be like, well, you're resting me against the team that's top of the league today and you're keeping me for Tuesday for an FA Trophy qualifying game. I'm like, come on, Gaffer, I'm not stupid. Just, you know, just tell me that you think I'm not, I haven't done, been playing well or whatever. So I try and be as open and honest with the staff as what I can be. I think that's really important. And never ask anybody to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. So that's that's something I try to do in school. I never ask anybody to do anything I wouldn't be prepared to do. You are now a head teacher at Bowbrook Primary School. Yeah. We read on your website that your school vision is to build successful futures as a head teacher. What is your role in ensuring that your school meets that vision every single day? I think it's just, it's given it's given opportunities, isn't it? So for us. It's making sure that, that we find the children, what the children are really good at, and we and we give them as much support with that. But in primary school also, it's about giving them a broad range of skills. But everybody's got something like a little super strength. So we want to find that because that's probably what's going to be the thing that ends up their job or their passion. So it's trying to keep a hold of that for them and trying to fulfil it. And we just try and give as many opportunities to the children as we can. And I mean, the children at our school have get an amazing education it's so small it's got a brand new building got the best of everything and um, so every single day we just we come in our staff come in full of enthusiasm full of positivity and just trying to make every day brilliant brilliant for the kids because whatever's happening in their home lives what you know whatever might be going on as soon as they come in the door they want that they want to feel like they're valued and and so that is what I say to the staff every day. We put a positive um, face on and we buy as much opportunities as we can. Myself and Alyssa are both autistic. I imagine you have a number of autistic children at your school. How important is it to create an inclusive environment at school and how do you try to do this? Yeah, and, and I mean everybody's so everybody's so different on this. So we have you have like special educational needs coordinator. So we've got a range of children. We've got from from autism, ADHD, ASD. So we obviously we want our, all our children to experience children like that because that's society that we live in now as well. So it's recognizing that everybody's different, everybody's individuals, and we never criticize anybody for anything like that. And we and we try and explain the same to children that that's why somebody's interpreted that in that way. So rather than get angry or frustrated, just realize that's that's their personality. That's why they've reacted the way they've done. That's why they've got really upset when the timetable's changed, or that's why they've got really upset because somebody's asked them to do something, or they've had too many instructions at once that they haven't been able to follow. Um. 
So it's, it's a huge, you know, it's a huge part of, of what we have at school now. And we have such a range of children from physical, fit with physical disabilities. We have um, obviously children now with load, loads of emo emotional issues. We have children in child protection. We have children with English as additional languages, children with special educational needs, children with thought like with um with autism. So we just we try to welcome everybody. Now, for some children, mainstream might not be possible. So we have had a couple of children in the past who haven't been able to access the curriculum and the mainstream school hasn't been set up for them. So if that is the case, we will try and find specialist provision. But as far as we can, we try and accommodate them in school and we just change the curriculum a little bit and alter it and differentiate it for those for those children. Last question regarding being a head teacher now, and you mentioned it a little bit about some of the strengths, but what we want to know is what is your biggest weakness as a head teacher and what are you right. doing to try and improve it? Really, really good one that is because um, as if I've got I know a couple of other head teachers and I think uh, saying that you're vulnerable, I think it's important as a leader to say you're vulnerable. Now again, coming from that football background, whereas I'm never nervous, I'm all right, you're mentally strong. People don't want to hear that all the time. I, you don't, they don't want to say their head teacher is a quivering wreck and off they come in, I'm crying in the corner. But also I think it's important to sometimes say, yeah, I felt a bit rubbish this morning when I woke up. Yeah, I feel a bit overwhelmed with what I've got to do. Yeah, I feel nervous about Ofsted or the events coming up. Or yeah, I've had a rubbish, I messed up and I've had a rubbish meeting with a parent. So I think I'm trying to be show more vulnerable and be more honest. But that's quite a difficult thing to do when you've spent sort of 15 years in your career seeing everything's all right all the time and being in the dressing room and trying to pretend that you're tough and trying to pretend that you're physically and mentally tough. You know, if you were, you, you wouldn't go to Peter Reed and go, oh, Gaffer, I'm feel, I, fell, I fell a bit down this morning when I woke up, you know, I'm feeling <laughs> a bit rubbish about coming to and you wouldn't, you, 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 you wouldn't say that. Like, I, I think football is changing a little bit now. But, you know, even if I had said to the lads when I was 20, 22, 23, I've had a bit of a rubbish week this week. I'm feeling a bit down. You know, I'm a little bit worried about my contract and that. They just go, shut up, Sam. Go and have a pint and get a, get a grip of yourself. Yeah. Like, which I'd like to think that I I certainly wouldn't say that now. Me and Gavin talk about that a lot. So obviously, me and Gavin in particular are really close. And we've always had this macho thing, even there when you're talking about who's the fastest and strongest. I say me, Gav says him. But I think we we are like our relationship becoming better now, whereas we do actually talk about stuff like that a little bit more and go, yeah, so everybody feels rubbish sometimes. Everybody feels tired. Everybody feels a bit overwhelmed. And I think it's trying to own that. So that's definitely something I'm trying to do as a leader. You also have a very successful podcast, which you mentioned earlier, yeah. called In The Stips, yeah. which you that. do with your friends. <laughs> And former teammates Dave Edwards and Gav Cohen. Yeah. How is the podcast going, and what do you enjoy most about it? I, I think we enjoy just meeting up and just doing something different. And you know, we would do it. We would do it like for, without even thinking about it, making any money or anything. And we haven't. We've already made any money from it anyway, apart from a couple of live events. But we just enjoy meeting up. We enjoy having the chat. We enjoy talking about it. But um, they're brilliant lads who we get on really, really well with. Uh, what we want, though, I'm trying to get more YouTube 
subscribers because you want to get a thousand or something. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why we can't get that. I've got like I don't know if you have that issue or what, but it's um we it was it was so hot it was took us ages to settle because it's quite a, again it's quite a scary thing. Then we just took the plunge. We did it, and now we really now we really really enjoy it. You know we look for sometimes it's a pain because we're so busy to meet up, but when we're there. We love it. And we end up just talking nonsense and waffling on sometimes. And we have to go, right, some of that's going to need editing. But, um, yeah, we, we haven't we haven't won any awards yet, like unlike yourselves. But we're, um, that's the plan, hopefully. We will at uh, some point. I'm sure they'll come. Hopefully, hopefully. Do, do you two listen to it? Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. Thanks, lad. Thank you. So Thank I listened you. to, is it the bust-ups, isn't it, this week? Bust-ups, so, yeah, um, bust-ups. I've listened to the first probably half of that uh, this morning on the yeah. way to school, talking about all your, your fights and arguments. You you, um, you have some amazing guests on yours, though, don't you? When it's look at them, the guests, and those go, wow, that's... You know, who's, who's been your who's been one of some of your best guests? Go on, Tom. Um, mine's between Paddy McGuinness and... Re- it, it used to be a different football player but I remember telling Adam last time because it was another great one that was in person that was Brian McClare those are like my two main favourites we met Paddy McGuinness Paddy McGuinness was really good friends with Jason McAteer and with Tramia and they put he come on our Christmas do once and he was funny really funny but like Jason McAteer was his best mate and every time Paddy McGuinness spoke Jason McAteer was going he's not even funny like you're not funny Paddy you're not funny but he was funny he's a, he's a really really good bloke <laughs> Yes, no, we've been very lucky. And actually, you're you're our ninety eighth guest. So um, in two weeks' time, we're we've got a hundredth episode coming up, which is Ooh. which is incredible. And it's something we never thought would ever ever happen. Oh, well done, fair play to you. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Last question now regarding your podcast. What's your looking back at your podcast? What's your favorite memory? What's your standout memory so far? Well, I mean, we've had some great ones. It, 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 I mean, initially when. It was just mad the first time. So I said, I think I've said this before. We were going to we were going to interview Andy Tretton, who's played for Shrewsbury, and then we were looking at the guest. Dave Edwards just said, "Why don't? What about Connor Cody?" Like Connor Cody at the time was like captain of Wolves playing for England. I was like, "Get Connor Cody on then. Get him on now. Ring him, Dave." And Dave's so Dave's so nice with things like that. He doesn't want to bother people. As me and Gav would just ring anybody and ask. Whereas. Dave's not really like, oh, I don't want to be a pest. But anyway, that was brilliant because that was our first big guest. And we we like we had a practice run, we wrote out all the questions. We just, you know, we we massively overthought it. We had like lists of questions and everything. That was good. But then we went when we went to see Joe Hart, we drove up to Glasgow, which took about five hours. Um, then we stayed in Joe's apartment all through the day, and we end up being there for sort of seven or eight hours, and that was quite amazing. You know, and he hadn't really done that before. And he really opened up about lots of things, like not just on air, but off air as well. You know, and he, and it was just, that was quite amazing, really, you know, to hear from someone who'd been at, at such a high level and talking about the highs and lows and how brutal football had been, you know, and some of the feedback you'd had from these sort of top managers. And you think, I think that, that, was, a, that was a massive one for us. But we just recorded them. Um, one with Drew Broughton. Don't know if you've heard of it. him on Instagram, like the fear coach, which it was good timing, really, because what we're talk- talking about is being vulnerable. And he sort of shines a light on footballers, the you know, and the fear that they have sometimes and they play with and how 
difficult. Everybody just sees, you know, the the nice car and the money and like they've got a great life. But actually, there's a lot of people who haven't um, in football as well. So he sort of talks about that and shines a light on the nerves and the anxieties and sort of the, what people don't see behind the scenes. So that was really, really fascinating. So that's definitely worth a listen. Doing a bit of advertising there for in the stiffs there. But... Yeah. And I'm sure now he's retired. Surely Dave's got Gareth Bale's number. Again, that that's typical Dave, isn't it? I'm like, me and Gareth are going, ring Gareth Bale now. When we're out, ring Gareth Bale now and ask him. I'll put him on the phone, I'll ask him. But I don't know what's happening with that. Uh, I, he said um he said he, he said he's not sure it's the right one anymore, Dave said. But yeah, that's who we want on. That would be good for our hundredth episode, Gareth Bale. That would be a massive one. Yeah. The right one. Who who wants the best footballer ever to come out of the UK anyway? Yeah, well, yeah. That's, that's he's only won five bad. Champions Leagues. Yeah, that's, and, and like even if we just had him, even if we just had him forty minutes, because he never does anything, does he? Doesn't really do anything like that. It's just and Dave says he's such like a down to earth great lad. Like he'd, he'd do it. He'd like to do it, Dave. But I don't know. We're hoping for that. We're, Hopefully our 100th episode, I don't know what we're on now, or even our 50th episode, will be amazing to go. We've got Gareth Bale. Surely Dave spends enough time on the golf course with him these days. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, come on, Dave. Like, get, you know, give him a call. When, give him a call. And, and, and Gareth loves his golf. So I'm sure we, and, and we're more than prepared to go to his house or go wherever. I mean, I was up <laughs> in Madrid when he was there, but... I don't know. Budging our sponsors and never really didn't offer to fund that. <laughs> Every week on the podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be oh, for. Right. Okay. This week's question comes from our previous guest, former Ireland and British Lions player, Paul Wallace. And he asks, what is the greatest moment in your career? Again, I would for, for me, the greatest moment would have to be really winning the winning the first division with Sunderland at eighteen. I just wish that you know I could have probably been a bit older and enjoyed it a little bit more because at the time, like I said before, I was eighteen. I wasn't like you just didn't overthink anything. Whereas if I if I'd won that at twenty nine thirty, I would have probably you know really made the most of it and been present and just sort of soaked it all in. Whereas when I was 18, I was just trying to drink as much alcohol as I can, champagne, like drink as much champagne as I could and just have a laugh with me mates. And I think I wish I'd just taken it in a little bit more. But I think that's got to be, that's got to be the highlight. That was the sort of highest level, um, highest honour that I ever got. So I would say that winning the championship. Brilliant. And could you do the same for us, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest? A question can be anything you want. Um. Can you tell me the time in your career where you felt the most vulnerable? I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. Really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Sam. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you thank you oh, thank you Tom that's, that's really nice thank you I enjoyed it and I, I think you're I think you're the second best podcast going as well brilliant Tom how was that it was amazing I was literally so glad because like ever since it was first announced 
I was so glad to chat to him because obviously I was I was intrigued to like say and mention it because obviously we we both uh, it was mentioned quite a few times about in the stiffs, but obviously I'm quite a new listener. Like I'm I'm only just like halfway through uh, season one, and it's it's really good because you know I'm glad to know. Um, he's also a connection with the other host of the in the stiffs. Yeah, and as Sam mentioned, we saw Sam at Dave Edwards' testimonial. We, we watched him play and we spoke to him. Um, so it was great to get him on the pod and listening to kind of yeah. some of his stories about playing for for Sunderland and Wrexham and Tramia. Um, and I find it really interesting to kind of see the journey he's gone on as a as a person into education because I think not many. I don't really know many footballers who have gone into education and teaching and become a head teacher as well. So I thought it was really interesting listening to him about his he- being a head teacher. Every week we like to get some of our listeners to send questions in for us. Um, and this week we have a question from Tony from Bristol. So Tom, I'm going to ask you his question if and if you don't mind. So okay. his question is, do you think the public understand more about autism and what more can be done to raise awareness for autism? My my take on that is I feel like the public has started to get a better understanding of it now, probably like compared to like the noughties of the early like you know like the early two thousands. Because like for the past like decade, most people kind of like oblivious to like what autism exactly is. Because like I mean, even before I truth be told was diagnosed with autism. I didn't completely understand about autism. I used to just stereotypically see autism as it's like, it's where like someone's got it and then it's just like, they're that one part of autism, but that's that's only the stereotypical side of autism. I learned when I was more later into my childhood, early, early teens, that there's different spectrums of autism and it's not just like what the public eye stereotypically sees of autism where it's like, you know, someone's more like they're severe with autism, where like, you know, there's some autistic uh, people that are clever than others and there's some that are more like uh, stick to routine more compared to other ones or there's some that, you know, don't get overwhelmed enough for like information or overload or just uh, noise overload. So um, I'm just glad that for the past few years, um society has been starting to understand and get an awareness of autism yeah brilliant and i definitely agree i think it's becoming more um more awareness more acceptance of autism which is which is brilliant and hopefully we we as a podcast are helping that and raising awareness of autism through through our podcast so no brilliant that's good to hear and also tom we we've recently been to liverpool haven't we so we went to Liverpool a few days ago and we were asked yes, by we Level Playing Field, which is a charity, to take part in their, their advert. Um, so their advert is looking yeah. at hidden disabilities in football with football fans. Can you tell us a little bit about what we did and kind of what, what your experience was in Liverpool? Yeah, it was. Um, I was just mainly not only glad to be uh, a part of the crew football, but I also enjoyed obviously going back to Liverpool because I have great memories when we chatted to Sammy Lee last time we went to Liverpool. But the main sides that even Alyssa enjoyed on there was, you know, we, we got to, before we 
even started, we met this uh, blind guy. Um, I forgot his name. Did it begin? It was. I can't remember his surname. His but, name is Darren. He was from Wolverhampton, wasn't he? Um, I I didn't realise until he mentioned it. Obviously, he was a Wolves fan, and it was just nice to see someone else who's a Wolves fan, and you know, it was good just to chat with him and get to know him more. And then after that, obviously, me and Alyssa, we got the makeup opportunity to prepare for the recording. So, you know, I I didn't mind doing that. And Alyssa um, really enjoyed that because it, you know, getting all the makeup. How did you feel when you were doing the recording and there was lots of cameras, lots of people on us? How did you feel then? Truth be told, I was slight nervous. I'd say if I did it like four years ago, I would have been more nervous. But because I'm used to that type of environment now, luckily, because as you know, I'm like you, I really enjoy media and I've been like, you know, around certain areas sometimes wherever they're doing like filming and stuff. And they, it, it was awkward because there was obviously the three main cameras and the one that I'd end up unintentionally looking at the most was not the one on the far left, but the one that was near the middle. So it was yeah. like the second one. That was the one that I looked at like two or three times unintentionally. So, But again, you were you and Alyssa were both brilliant and it was a, a great experience. I think they said that the advert is going to be out in February 2024. Um, so it was amazing to be part of the advert and that's a national wide advert that goes to all 72 football league clubs. So hopefully that gets some good exposure and, and we'll be able to see our, ourselves on, on the advert. Thank you everyone to listening to this episode um we all hope you really enjoyed it and uh, uh remember to stay tuned with future episodes especially because we're almost reaching 100 uh episode and if you haven't already make sure to follow our social medias which is facebook instagram twitter which recently we ran to x uh and tiktok and also make sure if you haven't already to uh subscribe to our youtube channel we really appreciate it and we'll catch you all next time take care everyone see you later the tws sports podcast combines autism and sport this unique podcast is hosted by children with autism and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world the tws sports podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career their highs and lows what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.